Many Americans recognize the threat emanating from the People's Republic of China. Some may assume that Beijing's malign activities are relegated to the Indo-Pacific. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Beijing is increasingly active in Latin America, right here in our own hemisphere. What are Beijing and other adversaries up to? Why do these activities matter, and how should we respond? U.S. Army General Laura Richardson is a leader, soldier, aviator, and combat veteran. She has commanded an assault helicopter battalion in Iraq. Served as military aide to the vice president and led the army component of U.S. Northern Command. Now she is the commander of U.S. Southern Command, the first woman to serve in that position. Southcom is one of the Pentagon's six geographic commands and is responsible for U.S. contingency planning, operations, and security cooperation in Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. I'm so pleased that she is sitting down with me to discuss the challenges and opportunities in Latin America. It is my honor to fill in as host for Cliff May, and I'm so glad you have joined us too here on Foreign Policy. General Richardson, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to FDD. It is、uh, wonderful to see you again, and I really appreciate you making time to sit down and talk with me. Well, I'm really glad to be here, Brad. Thank you so much for the invitation and and the opportunity to talk about the Southcom area of responsibility. It's really, really important. Well, I'm I'm excited, and I can only imagine how busy you are. So I'm I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You know, we met years ago、uh, when I was working in the U.S. Senate, advising a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and you were the Army's legislative liaison to Congress, and and I respected your work、uh, so much then, and and I just continue to follow your career from afar. I'm really excited to see all the success you've had. And there's so much to discuss, and I'm eager to dive into the issues. But I found that it's kind of fun in the beginning just to help the listeners just kind of connect to you as an individual, so a little bit of your personal and professional background, if that's okay.、Uh, I noticed that、uh, your official bio lists that you're a, a native of North Glen, Colorado, if, if, if we have that right. And if my research is correct, you you、uh, earned your private pilot's license at age 15. That doesn't strike me as the average activity of your normal 15 year old. So what, what, is that right? And, and what interested you in flying at such an early age? Well,、uh, my parents were interested in keeping me focused in the、yeah. right direction, and so.、Um Working on my private pilot's license would take up uh, uh, some of my time and keep me focused on、uh, things that could do good for me in the future. So、yeah. I'm just very grateful for my parents. They they both had experience flying as、um, as private pilots at, at one point in their in their lives. Both my mom and my dad. So、um, they were eager to get me started.、Uh, not that competitive swimming didn't keep me busy enough. So this <laughs> yeah <laughs> this occupied yeah. the other part of、yeah. whatever time I had left and. Uh, I'm just really grateful because it set set me forward on a whole new path and career. Quite honestly, in the military. Exactly. No. Did you do your first solo flight then at age 15? I remember my first solo flight in Army flight school, and that was that's something to tell the grandkids about. So, did you do a solo right, flight so, that early? Or、uh, so、uh, you had to be 16. So okay. Like okay. You had to、okay. have your 16 when you had your driver's license, and 16 in Colorado to get your private pilot. So I did all my training at 15, and then、uh, waited till I turned 16. Okay. Which wasn't too far away, and then、uh, and then soloed. Nice. You mentioned swimming、uh, again. If my research is correct, here you were an all-American swimmer in college. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. When yeah. did you have time to study? 
Well, um, <laughs> make sure I didn't have time for anything Yeah, else. well, you must have done okay because uh, you went on to uh, graduate from Metropolitan State University and, and decided to join the Army. Of all the things that you could have done, why did you decide to become an Army officer? Well, um, the uh, in terms of being uh, physically fit, I think my, uh, my folks saw that it was a path that uh, I could be successful at um, and that it opened a lot of opportunities. It fit really nicely with the flying. I think actually my my folks had it planned out that do the flying and then the interest in the ROTC and then wow. you they know, had a grand strategy there. It sounds like and it and it really did work wow. out and the wow. opportunities have been phenomenal yeah. in the army. I mean, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't have asked for the things that I've gotten to do. Yeah, I really couldn't. Speaking of those things, you went on to be a UH-60 Blackhawk pilot, and as you and I both know, the best helicopter in the Army right, inventory, absolutely. and uh, commanded a um, um, an assault helicopter battalion in the 101st um, uh, Division, and uh, deployed in 2003 and four to Iraq in that role, and you were a military aide to the Vice President, um, and uh, Army campaign, campaign planner in the Pentagon, and then commanding general of U.S. Army North within NORTHCOM, which is, which is pretty incredible. I have to ask, I can't resist. Um, is it true that you carried the nuclear football when you were working at the White House? Well, that's what you do as a military yeah, aide to yeah. the vice president or the president. And so that was um, that was an honor of a lifetime, wow. you know, representing yeah. our service, but also being able to be trusted and and uh, be able to uh, do that, uh, you know, that job, that position. Yeah. And very important. And so, and being able to work around the great people serving yeah. the country. So it was really, uh, what a great opportunity. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, in uh, 2000, I was looking at a, pre a previous interview you did in 2019 and referring to your decision to join the army, you told an interviewer, quote, I thought I'd give the army a try and and leave when I wasn't having fun anymore. Are you still having fun? I am. <laughs> okay. In okay, fact, good. I think I'm having some of the most fun yeah, okay. ever uh, wow, um, wow. with this region uh -huh. and the opportunities that we have and, and just the phenomenal people that yeah. I get to meet and yeah. I get to work with and trying so hard for democracy. And uh, it's just really amazing. It really, uh, there's definitely a passion uh, in our region. And it's, it's, it's really, it's just a great opportunity. Again, um, I just can't believe it. You got to pinch yourself, you know, <laughs> that you get to do this. Well, that's great. Well, let's get right to that. Then that's the perfect segue to your current position as commander of U.S. Southern Command. Now, a lot of listeners will know what that means and some may not. If you wouldn't mind, um, you know, what is Southern Command and, and what is your area of responsibility? Well, great opportunity to uh, talk about uh, the Southcom region. And so United States Southern Command is uh, one of six geographic combatant commands. And so the Department of Defense splits the globe up into six sections, if you will. And I have one of the six. And it includes the Caribbean, Central America, and South America. Um, very uh, rich, diverse region that we have so many ties to culturally. Uh, just the family connections that we have with the region, uh, our trade, you know, number one trading partner. Um, the, uh, it, it's just a, a phenomenal, uh, um, place and just the history as well that we have with this region. I like to call it the, um, our neighborhood. And our neighborhood is, you know, when you think of a neighbor and you think of being a good neighbor, you watch out for each other, you care for each other, you actually, 
care about what happens to each other. You prevent bad things from happening. Mm. You're on the lookout on your street for your neighbors always, and you're always helping each other out. And so that's the relationship that we have. It's like-minded democracies for the most part. And, um, but it's, uh, I like to say that it's a, a call to action right now between democracy and autocracy in our region. You know, the, um, we have, um, um, we have uh, 28 of 31 like-minded democracies, as I said, for the most part. We continue to work the, those relationships extremely hard um, and, uh, and work the, you know, in terms of Southern Command. Um, we work with our partner nations. I call them partner nations uh, in the neighborhood, but work to help them counter their challenges and be able to deal with the complex challenges that they have. And certainly with contingency planning that we do at Southcom, ready for contingencies, ready for operations, but also with security cooperation. And that's what I get after in terms of helping to make them stronger um, with their capabilities, The um, all based in human rights, the rule of law, the professionalization of a military uh, and that's the entire military. It's not just the officer corps. We have a great program that my command sergeant major Ben Jones has um, has been spearheading for the last two years, the senior enlisted leader development program. Women, peace, and security is baked into everything that we do in addition to human rights, the rule of law. And, um, and so with all of this, um, you know, I could take an example, a good example of what uh, transpired in Peru uh, yesterday, you know, and what the, the military and the security forces upheld their constitution uh, and the rule of law. And uh, because of, I, I think, the work that, uh, that we have done with the United States and uh, specifically with the Southcom Human Rights Initiative that we've had for 25 yeah. years um, and the relationship with those, those military, the military uh, people and folks that are in charge, they did the right thing. Yeah. Well, and- that's, that's excellent. I, I want to um, talk more about all the, the great work that, that your command is doing down there. I was, I was thinking that maybe we could organize our, our, our discussion going forward as kind of headache and aspirin. Maybe talk about the headaches or challenges and then maybe some of the aspirin. Uh, um, but before we jump into that, with your permission, I – you know, a, a lot of listeners will think you know, who are focused on national security would say, you know, they're tracking things in the Indo-Pacific. They're tracking some things maybe in the Middle East or uh, the situation in Ukraine. Um, what would you say to them in terms of what are our core uh, interests or priorities? What are America's core interests and priorities in Latin America, would you say? So uh, working with our partner nations, we have like-minded democracies. Um and uh, I really like what uh, our, our Secretary of Defense and the National Defense Strategy, he uses the term integrated deterrence. And the meaning of integrated deterrence, I think, in the, in the Southcom region, we've been putting integrated deterrence into action every day. Yeah. I like to also um, describe integrated deterrence as team democracy. <laughs> you want to be on team democracy? Uh, come to Southcom and, uh, and join in. And, uh, if you want to help, uh, further along democracies and make sure that, um, uh, as I said, the call to action between democracy and autocracy. Um, and it's really, it's not just the joint force, it's allies and partners, it's academia, it's industry, it's private sector investment, uh, it's non governmental organizations. 
Uh, it's our National Guard State Partnership Program that I have the largest one out of any of the geographic combatant commands. It's the United States Army Corps of Engineers that are helping me do projects with these countries uh, to counter the Belt and Road Initiative by the People, People's Republic of China. So if you want to be on Team Democracy, you come to Southcom and we'll put you to work because we have a lot, our adversaries, we used to be, the United States used to be the only the only one on the block with our partner nations. And now we have competition and we yeah. are definitely in strategic competition in the Western Hemisphere. And it's very evident. You mentioned China, and I'm glad you did because that's uh, where I was hoping to go next. Uh, you know, again, when people think China, maybe they think the Taiwan Strait or, or other things, and they may not think first of Latin America. Yet, uh, uh, my research tells me, and you would know better than me, that China, the PRC, is quite active in Latin America. And I think, uh, for my part, I think it's important for Americans to know that. Uh, I noticed in your uh, testimony to the Senate Armed Service Committee in March, you said that uh, you called the PRC, the People's Republic of China, the number one pacing threat. That, of course, reflects the, the national security strategy of this administration, the national defense strategy. But I assume when you said that, that you meant in Latin America. So do you view China as the number one pacing threat in Latin America as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're using the same playbook that they have been using. So doing it in this uh, area, of, uh, in this region, in the Western Hemisphere, they've already done it in Africa. I would say we're five to seven years behind mm -hmm. Africa. Uh, and uh, they've done it in other places other than Africa, too. So it's not new, but it's happening right under our nose. And uh, when we have 21 of the 31 countries in, the, uh, in this region that have signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative, you add on another four countries that actually have PRC projects, People's Republic of China projects in the country, although they're not signatories, um, that's 25 of 31. It's huge. And all of these projects are billions of dollars. And so the question that I pose to, to the audience is, why when you have the biggest and largest in history military buildup in mainland China and the conventional and nuclear arsenals, uh, this largest uh, military buildup, why across the planet is the PRC um, looking like they're investing with billions of dollars of projects with their state-owned enterprises, uh, their government-owned, um, government-controlled state-owned enterprises? Um, it makes you wonder, and it's in all of the critical infrastructure, mm -hmm. deep water ports, it's in the telecommunications with 5G, uh, 3G, 4G, it's in the space infrastructure. I've got the most space infrastructure out of all of the uh, six combatant command regions. Um, why is that? One has to scratch their head and really ask why. And, and I look at this, not just our neighborhood, but, but to be a neighborhood, that means you, uh, you're close to each other. And I can fly to 80% of this region in uh, two to three to three and a half, four hours. Uh, and so this is how close this is, and this is happening. We have a lot of rich resources in the region. The lithium triangle is mm. in the region. 60% of the world's lithium in Argentina, Bolivia, Bolivia and Chile. Uh, we have the Amazon, uh, 11 countries that have the Amazon. We have, you know, uh, lungs of the world that the Amazon is called. There's a deforestation problem. There's an illegal logging problem in the Amazon. There's an illegal mining problem and the, uh, the poisoning of the water and uh, just the destruction of the land is happening currently. Uh, there's gold, copper. 
Guyana, uh, largest growing economy in the world right now with the light sweet crude that was discovered off the shores. They are not postured and we need to help them. We need to have uh, U.S. democratic investment uh, in Guyana to help them. Uh, this is an opportunity uh, for them to uh, to have great things happen in this country, but it's also an opportunity for our adversaries to exploit that. When you see uh, countries in the region that have infrastructure needs or or, um, or, uh, or things that they want to put out a tender or a contract on, do you see American and Western companies competing for those? Or is it often just the Chinese showing up with the, with the offer? Thank you for asking the question because no, the answer is no. Yeah. And when uh, that's the only bid or there's only a couple of bids right. and, it's, and it's the PRC uh, for both – uh, they have no choice. And so what I'd like to do is just add another, uh, another uh, very important factor that's, um, or factoid that's uh, very prevalent here is the COVID, COVID-19 pandemic in this region, 8% of the world's population, but they suffered 33% of the world's COVID deaths. Uh, 107 million people uh, thrown into poverty as a result. These democratic nations are trying to deliver for their populations, and they're, they're only in the seat for a very short period of time, four years, maybe six years. Uh, a lot of the countries don't have a second term that you can run, so that they're trying to deliver for the people. And I think that's when you have challenges, um, you have unrest, you don't have food security, it's, you want food, you want health care, you're just trying to get the basic needs and you can't get it. You have the uh, transnational criminal organizations, the cartels and things like that, $310 billion annual revenue from this business. Um, that just doesn't include counter-narcotics. It's also human trafficking. It's all the other things I mentioned before, too. Deforestation, illegal logging, illegal mining, uh, illegal unregulated, unreported fishing, IUUF is what we call that. All of that is just a, a vicious cycle of threats. And to me, that creates the insecurity and the instability to allow the malign state actors like China and Russia to flourish in the region. And so this is what they're, you have unrest, you have protests, you have, you know, so you have challenges on the security forces and the police and the military forces um, trying to do the right thing, let their populations peacefully demonstrate. Um, but also try to help keep the peace without um, going against their constitution. So they're really challenged because of the basic needs that the population is trying to get. It's. I'm so glad you've you've emphasized the one belt one road or the belt and road in, initiative, whatever we want to call it. And and you, I heard you say earlier that you know they're they're about five to seven years behind what we've seen in other places. And and uh, you know when I look at, at what uh, BRI has meant in Asia and Africa and elsewhere, it's it, not always, but often it, it strikes me as almost kind of a a neo-imperialistic effort to uh, create dependencies and extract resources, and they don't give a darn about the local population. And yeah, they're building some infrastructure, but usually it's roads and rails to get the resources out of the country, environment be darned, uh, local population be darned. And, and um, there's, so there's that from an environmental perspective, which you've touched on, but they're also the, the opaque nature of the agreements often uh, uh, facilitates corruption, 
and encourages dependency, which they often will come in later and use to create national security opportunities for themselves, like we saw in Sri Lanka. Are you seeing the early stages of that type of thing, or, or in, in your region? Or um, well, you have, you know, n- normally when you're going to invest in a country and uh, help the country out, uh, as as what we do and what we're um, is uh, part of our DNA when you uh, help a neighbor is, you know, you, you, uh, employ the host nation workers, you help their, you invest in their, you know, this is for them, the project, whatever you're going to do. And the PRC brings in their workers. They build places for them to live. They don't hire host nation workers. Of course, there's the debt trap that we all know about with these projects. Uh, there's never a, this is, um, you know, we're, we're working with you on this. It's a this for that. Right. I also have eight of the 14 countries that still recognize Taiwan in this region. You know, uh, we'll, we'll provide you this and, uh, and the loans and, and oh, by the way, um, also if you change your, um, your recognition of Beijing, uh, versus Taiwan. So it's always a this for that. The, um, the, uh, I, I saw in your in the testimony there, there was discussion about the the, the role of uh, Chinese state owned enterprises uh, in and around the Panama Canal at, at both sides, and that's obviously deeply concerning from a strategic perspective. Um, and also, um, I know that back in 2015, China's military released a white paper outlining plans to deepen its security and defense cooperation across your region, uh, leading to a stronger mill to mill ties in Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, as well as Guyana, Trinidad, and Tobago. What is your sense about the current state of those defense partnerships between China and those countries? Um, and what do you what do you think uh, the PLA is trying to accomplish in the region? So I would say that they're they're using our uh, same playbook, if you will, uh, in the region. They're not as good as us, but they're getting better every day. Uh, in terms of the mill to mill, they've created a lot of mill to mill relationships. And so, the, what I always ha- what I always say is that you have to be on the field with your jersey on, your number on, uh, and uh, a little goes a long way in this region. It really, really does. I don't need a lot of big high end equipment, uh, but I do need uh, what makes it, our partner nations stronger, so they can help. Um, you know, I have plenty of examples where the investment that we wait, we, we make, they turn right around and put it to good use. Um, we also have very, uh, with Congress, um, and the oversight, uh, that they have, but, you know, they, we want to make sure our partner nations are using that equipment in the right way too. So we watch that very, very closely. Uh, uh and I would say that the, just the partnerships, um, the professor professionalization of the military, working with our leaders. So, you know, as we've had these elections and very important elections, I could start with Chile uh, over a year ago. I could start with uh, Honduras, with Colombia now. We'll start with a new, probably a new team uh, with Brazil, with their elections that just occurred and um, and educating and informing uh, them and then bringing up those leaders because depending on the next chief of defense and the, and the uh, service chiefs for all the services, you know, they, um, these folks will, will, um, will be new in the positions and, and we've got to help them and help them with their role and understanding how, um, you know, their, their military works and then how we can help with their professionalization and helping them with the equipment they need. 
a few years back, China established, um, according to open source research, a space research facility in Argentina uh, that uh, appears to be um, uh, related to telemetry tracking and control. And there's been some concern that maybe they've been it's being used for other purposes that are inconsistent with the initial agreement. Um, according to the the the, uh, the, the uh, Pentagon report that just came out a few weeks ago in the Chinese military, there's also space related Chinese space related sites, as I understand it, in Brazil and Chile, or at least according to that report. Are you seeing anything on that front in terms of Chinese activity related to space operations in in your area that that you would want to highlight? So it, it it's very concerning, you know. The um, the uh, PRC will tell you that this is all research, and I'm sure that there's uh, possibly research going on there uh, as well. But the thing is, is I worry about dual use, and dual use is the ability to, you know, you got a government uh, uh, government controlled state owned enterprise that's going to do what their government tells them to do, and I worry about the military being at, you know. It looks like a civilian facility. However, uh, being able to use it as a military facility at the flip of a switch. And so, um, again, I go back to, you know, why is there so much investment in the critical infrastructure by the PRC in uh, this region and in all of these countries? And as you see, as we talked about the BRI with these billions, every single project is in the billions. Um, you know, it's, it's off the charts. And so... Um, uh, uh, what we're starting to see is that there's uh, a little bit of buyer's remorse. Some of these <laughs> projects don't turn out to be that great, um, or they create other problems as they're built because of the workmanship. Is the dam in Ecuador was that? Is right. that where it was that that failed or had some problems? And Corps of Engineers <laughs> part of Team Democracy. Yeah, yeah. We got the Corps of Engineers yeah, that's yeah. yeah working on that yeah. dam to fix it, right? But um. But the Corps of Engineers, the, the, the money I get for this region is, um, it's in the, it, uh, it's in the millions. It's not in the billions. So when you look at the, at the investment that the PRC has made in the region with the BRI from 17, 2017 to 2021, uh, over 50 billion. Uh, the investment with, uh, that we have been able to put to, uh, to use in the, in, in the region from the Corps of Engineers is about 250 million. Which to me underscores the need to try to encourage a private sector investment to come right? in and reinforce it. We're, we're not going to be able to probably match that government to government competition. But exactly if we bring in right. one of our great strengths, our, yep. our, would you? I mean, would you agree? Absolutely. With that? Why aren't Why aren't we seeing more American bids? I mean, is it, they just don't know about them. Is it concerns about governance issues? I why? think I, I think COVID has put us a little bit behind. Yeah, right? Yeah, it totally yeah. uh, stopped travel and all the restrictions that were in place. But that's now opened up. So we partner very closely, Brad, with business executives uh, for national security, so Ben's, uh, and uh, the team that takes in CEOs to help the the government. They take a look at their, you know, the possibility for investment and then what might be the barriers to out, uh, the barriers to keep the investment from coming and let the government know so they can they can get after that and and work to fix that or change that. I feel like we could talk about China forever, and I would enjoy doing that. But I do want to cover a couple other nation-state issues, if I may. Russia, I'm just uh, interested in what you're seeing in the region in terms of Russia's activity, uh, particularly security-related activity, and how it's changed or not changed since the February 24th invasion of Ukraine. So we had two pretty high-level delegations that went to um, went to the region to visit Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Uh, and 
And I think just to show that they still had uh, uh, those relationships and that they still, uh, the importance of them because it's so close to our homeland. And so that's, you know, when I talk about the um, threats being on the at, at the 20-yard line or in the red zone, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, and so um, we have nine countries in addition to the three I just mentioned. We have another six, so a total of nine that have Russian equipment um, in their militaries. Now, the sanctions are working because the, uh, the ability to get spare parts to fix them and these, um, these, uh, this equipment is starting to get degraded and, yeah. and less and less, uh, uh, mission capable, which is a good thing. And so, and then also the program that Department of, uh, Defense and State have, which is, um, offering to, you know, if the country would like to uh, donate their equipment to the Ukraine. Mm. Uh, and then we helped to backfill that with uh, U.S. equipment. That's great. That's actually been an area of research here at FTD, I'm proud to say. Last summer, we we identified weapons uh, in non-NATO countries that were identical to or similar to what Ukraine was already using. Uh, and and then we looked at uh, political propensity for that respective government to, to transfer that equipment to Ukraine directly or indirectly, and what kind of security assurances would they need to make that happen. And so I'm so glad to hear that. Excellent. I, I wish we could spend more time on Russia, but just moving to Iran, and I noticed that uh, that's that was something you featured in your testimony earlier this year, and and you said, "quote Last year, uh, referring to twenty twenty one, two Iranian warships were bound for Venezuela, potentially carrying weapons and missile attack boats." Uh, it's my sense that you know things like that are really just the tip of the iceberg, and that there's a lot more that Iran and, and Hezbollah and others are doing in the region that doesn't always make the headlines. You've noted Iran expanded economic security cooperation, as you just said, with Venezuela, Cuba, and Bolivia. Can you talk, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit more about what you see Iran uh, as, as the Islamic Republic of Iran and some of its entities doing in the region? Sure. Um, the Certainly, if I had to, to list them in order, it would be the PRC definitely at the top, um, Russia second, uh, yeah. and quite honestly, the definitely in competition and conflict in some cases in the information space with Russia. And so I want to make sure I make that point yeah. on uh, with Russia, uh, with the Sputnik Mundo and the uh, Russia Today Espanol, over 30 million followers. And the disinformation and the the peaks in this disinformation as a, very important elections are coming up and uh, the propping up of uh, candidates that might not be aligned with democracy or you know, how we look at our like-minded democracies that we work with. So we're trying to get after it. We yeah. use all capabilities that are available. Um, and then I would say uh, in terms of uh, back to Iran uh, being uh, less than uh, our adversaries, the top two adversaries, but definitely a spoiler in the region and uh, one that we keep very close uh, eye on uh, with activities that, that they have in the region as well. My uh, my FDD colleague Emanuele Otelangi does tremendous work related to the activities of Tehran and Hezbollah in Latin America. He just published a piece uh, a few days ago on December sixth that's worth reading. He highlighted these so-called cultural centers that uh, Tehran has in the region in Latin America. That among other things, and, and a lot of listeners will be interested, in, disseminate the revolutionary message of the Islamic Republic's founder, Ayatollah Khomeini. They also radicalize and indoctrinate local activists, many of whom travel back to Iran for revolution. 
revolutionary propaganda training. And and uh, matter of fact, he uh, Emmanuel has been watching some of the the flight activity going back and forth between Tehran and Caracas. And and um, one has to wonder whether there's more than just tourists on those flights, you know. Um, but I don't know if that's something that you or your 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 team are tracking. But um, uh, given the connectivity we see in between Iran and Russia in terms of providing the Sheed 136 drones and uh, um, and uh, Iran's longstanding activity in that region, um, that does seem to be something that's concerning. Absolutely. And um, and like I said, I go back to my uh, point I made earlier on is the uh, that we're not the only ones in the region anymore. We have competition. And because of the uh, some of our nations dealing with their uh, internal challenges, um, you know, if we're not there to offer something else or what they need or the, the help, someone else will. They'll fill that void. Yeah. But it'll it'll be filled with something we don't want. And twisting our partner nations' arms, getting them in debt, uh, or uh, equipment that uh, we sh- we know the United States equipment that we have is the best equipment. It, uh, you get, uh, United States equipment. You're part of, uh, you know, the, uh, what NATO has. You talk about the interoperability, uh, and it just the, the reach and, uh, the, the team democracy that you're a part of. They want that. But when they can't, uh, get that and they can't get it in, uh, at the speed of relevance, then, uh, they're forced to take other options. Um, before we move to the uh, the aspirin section, which is more fun, because we talk about solving problems in that period, uh, anything that you want to say that you have in addition to what you've already said about tr- uh, TCOs, transnational criminal organizations. I mean, obviously, there's a lot in, in the region, and it's a major challenge. But anything that you'd want to highlight? It is, for and I think that um, it's a very complex issue. And um, at the end of the day, I think it's a matter of we have to be able to follow the money. And when I say we, um, I mean, the, that's a, that's a whole of government. That's a interagency, um, that, and that's tough and it's hard. And we've got like, uh, seven PRC banks in the region with 270 some branches. Um, we have, you know, goods that are coming in and out of these partner nations in these countries. Uh, as I said before, $310 billion, uh, annual revenue. Um, these cartels are and transnational criminal organizations, again, they're just very powerful. And these, uh, these nations are dealing with all of this insecurity and instability that's created by these organizations. But the thing is, is we have to go at the source. Yeah. Right. We can't just continue to, um, interdict our way, <laughs> interdict our way out of, uh, you know, with one vessel here and one aircraft here and that kind of thing. We've got to go. We've got to follow the money and we got to get the, the sources of where this is coming from. So much of what we've talked about, it, it strikes me as, is things that are kind of outside the traditional definition of what the Department of Defense does. And, and you've, I, I, for my part, I think rightly highlighted the important role that a lot of the interagency partners play there. And, and but, um, you know, in terms of kind of the traditional security cooperation uh, mission within Southcom, I'd love to hear kind of discussion of, you know, some of the, some of the accomplishments that you're proud of and, and what you might be able to do with additional resources. I mean, understanding that, um, resources 
resources are finite and as a country we have to prioritize and make tough decisions that's what strategy is all about as you know better than me but um would love just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about some of the successes you've seen in the security cooperation space and in in and what you might be able to do with some more resources so i would say the um the as we talked about uh before with the security cooperation we talk about the prc using the same playbook yeah. so they've they've really doubled down on uh, professional military yeah. education all expense paid trip to Beijing for a year, for two years, for PME. Um, and this is very attractive to our partner nations. Professional so military education, yeah. We have the same thing. However, in my mind, we need to increase what we have. We need to increase the professional military education. I will tell you, I'll just give you an example. The power of our PME is, um, you know, you can meet a, a new leader that leader, if they've been to a United States school, they will spend the first five or 10 minutes telling me about their experience. And then, you know, the, the bridge to that relationship is already halfway built, right? As opposed to someone that I'm trying to um, meet, build trust with. They already have the trust with me. Um, I just need to foster that. I, I don't have the number handy, but I remember seeing a statistic about the number of chiefs of defense and, and, and right. that have attended Ministers U.S. Of schools. Defense, and, and presidents, vice presidents, prime ministers. Yeah. And now yeah. some of those leaders, I hear you saying, are starting to go to China for training. Right. Well, they're being offered that. Yeah. And so if we don't, they can offer in larger numbers. But the yeah. thing that the Chinese don't have, they don't have women, peace, and security. Right. Every right. trip I take into the region I do a women, peace, and security event. We also do senior enlisted leader development event. Um, and we bring all of these. And, it, you know, you say an event. Well, what's an event, right? So we'll bring the leaders. We'll bring uh, service members from every service, not just men, but also women. We've also found uh, key in this region is a lot of senior enlisted women leaders. Columbia just put their first command sergeant major woman uh, for the CHOD the chief of defense uh, in charge of all of the military. So we have great programs. The other thing I want to say is the ability to convene partner nations. That's a very important fact that we're able to bring partner nations together, over 20 partner nations for our exercises. We have our longest running maritime exercise, UNITAS, 69 years. We just had that in the month of September. And that was held in Rio, but we had over 20 partner nations. We had ships, we had helicopters, planes, submarines, um, sailors, uh, airmen, marines, all working together, all working for interoperability. We had Panamax, um, 24 partner nations coming together uh, at uh, seven different locations that we had the commands and all with partner nations there working that exercise. So that's something that the Chinese yeah. don't have yeah. yet. Yeah. And so we don't want to sit back on our, uh, on our heels uh, waiting for them to catch up. And so we will continue to work that extremely hard. I love how you're infusing, if, if for my part, our, you know, our democratic values and our belief in the rule of law and, and uh, into the security cooperation. As the first woman to command Southern Command, I suspect you bring real credibility to those efforts. And we have strong women leaders yeah. in uh, in the Caribbean, Central America, and South America. We have a woman president. We have the only woman CHOD, chief of defense uh, for Jamaica that's in the seat. We've got vice presidents that are women. And so we have women prime ministers in the region. 
So it's not for lack of uh, any kind of an example, that's for sure. There was a comment in your testimony earlier where, you know, you talked about how uh, Venezuela, speaking of this competition between democracy and autocracy, you know, uh, Venezuela had suffered from two successive, you know, autocratic leaders that have basically uh, essentially destroyed that country and created a magnet for all kinds of malign actors and 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 transnational criminal organizations behavior. And it just just really demonstrates that with good governance comes all kinds of uh, things that are positive for the region and positive for us as a country. And when you have the opposite of that, like you have in Venezuela, it becomes a magnet for bad things that hurt the region first and foremost, and then then also us later on. Well, and then the other thing is, is all of our partner nations in this region are um, experiencing the impacts from Venezuela. Six million migrants and refugees out of that country. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Two and a half million in Colombia alone. Yeah, exactly. Um, The impacts on Colombia. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. One question I always love to ask, and I guess it's the former Senate staffer and me, I can't resist, but uh, one question I love to ask uh, senior military leaders like yourself is if you had one additional dollar to support Southcom's mission, where would you spend it? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say bring uh, our partner nations together, be able to bring them all together at one time to talk about all of the issues. Right now, I convene a uh, Caribbean conference of the of the leaders, a uh, Central American conference, and a South American. And then certainly, uh, Mexico's not in my AOR, but they are part of the Americas. They are part of the Western Hemisphere. So they're invited to everything. We have a very close working relationship with NORTHCOM. So it's the ability to convene uh, our partner nation leaders together. Because now we have, uh, you know, the changes with the elections. I've got a new chief of defense in Chile, a new chief of defense in, uh, in Colombia. I will in Brazil. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's normally what happens when you have a change of administration. You have new, uh, leaders and then Ecuador, a new chief of defense. So there's, there's change. And what you want to do is the earliest that you can get folks together. I think the power of convening uh, people together is they see their role with their other counterparts in the region. They're not the only one that's struggling with a problem and the challenges, and they get to see their other uh, counterparts as chiefs of defense together, and they get to talk about the issues. We We had our South American Defense Conference in Ecuador, Quito, Ecuador, in the middle of September, and it couldn't have been any better timing. So Chile, Colombia, Ecuador, all brand new chads. And then you had the other chads that were there from Brazil and Argentina and Peru. They were able to talk together. Obviously, Colombia had just uh, had their inauguration on the 7th of August. And so Colombia shares a border, northern border with Panama and a southern border with, uh, with Ecuador. So it was good to be able to introduce the chiefs of defense, talk about the borders, because typically that's where most of your activity happens, your malign activity. And so uh, it gave them a chance to meet each other, talk to each other. The communication, in-person contact, it means the world to this region to talk to each other.
And that's how I would spend it, to be honest well, that's, with you. Uh, thank you for that direct answer. And, and, and uh, uh, you've convinced me because, uh, I mean, a, a theme through everything you're saying here is that we have to be present. Yeah. Um, we have to compete. And it yeah. seems to me what you're describing there is a form of being present, right. a form of being uh, competing, and a form of demonstrating that we are part of that American neighborhood uh, and that we have common interests and common concerns that will be more effective in solving them if we work together. And so having the resources to do that, especially given some of the, uh, the changes that we're seeing uh, in government governments there and then the external challenges coming from things like the people and entities like the people's yeah. republic of china this is a this region is a hallmark of democracy but it's ours to lose if we don't if we aren't there working with them well said is there anything that i didn't ask you or uh anything that uh, that we didn't cover that you would like to, to add before we conclude here i want to be respectful of your time it's just uh i encourage folks to take advantage of the of the region i know that there are a lot of challenges and uh, but the, you know, I always try to look at things. Um, there's always challenges, Yeah. but what a fascinating region with a rich, rich history. We have so many ties to this region, our neighborhood. And I would encourage that, um, that, that we try to, uh, learn and understand our neighborhood, um, as much as we can, because if you look at, you know, I'm, I'm military, so I, I, I look at hard power, but I also look at soft power. As we have been working with the partner nations on exposing malign activities such as the, the IUUF, the Ill illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing that occurs, and, um, and it, it takes away from the revenue from our partner nations, from the fishermen. There's a lot of Chinese fishing vessels, aren't yeah, there? The I, mean, I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize fleet. that right up there on the uh, on the uh, west coast of South America. And they follow the migration patterns. And this fishing fleet, I mean, we're not talking about like right. little fishing boats. Right. Uh, the New York Times did a really good article on the deep water fishing fleet with pictures of these vessels and the motherships with all the big freezers. And you have just raiding the fish and uh, destroying uh, the areas in which they go and exposing this malign activity. Our adversaries do not like to be exposed at mm -hmm. all. Yeah. And so as we work with Global Fishing Watch, we work with That's Florida great. International University. We work with University of Miami. We work with our partner nations. I don't need credit for exposing this, but but we will we find it, we look for it, and then we'll uh, give it to our partner nations and the and NGOs and academia to expose it. I think that's wonderful. You know, when I look at the behavior of of Beijing, uh, almost everywhere I look, I see a, a tendency to want to, uh, to deal with things in a bilateral way, so that they can take advantage of power asymmetry. I that's fancy language for being a bully, <laughs> and and they also rely on not being seen sometimes. And so I think the more that we can expose. Uh, put, you know, just put light on what they're doing and show uh, sh uh, show the world what's happening. And the more that we can make things multilateral than than rather bilateral, I think it undercuts uh, key elements of their strategy. That's my sense in the South China Sea and perhaps in your your region as well. I don't know. Well, General, uh, you know, in your in your testimony again, uh, in from March, you said more than ever, more than ever, America's fate is inextricably linked to events beyond our shores, and uh, that was a core premise of our December 2020 Defending Four monograph that that we put out. And I, I could not agree more for what it's worth. And thankfully, from my perspective, we have fellow citizens and, and warriors like you who are focused on our security interests in key regions and doing all you can to uh, counter our adversaries, address key challenges, and keep Americans safe. So I just really want to sincerely thank. you 
you for uh, all that you've done for decades in serving our country. And I want to thank the men and women that you lead for their service and sacrifice on our behalf. And I hope you'll come back again soon, General Richardson, to join us here. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brad. I have one quote that I want to leave the audience with, and it's from the Minister of Public Security in Panama. And uh, and Minister Pino said, um, individually we are strong, but together we are invincible. And that's what I have to say about our relationship with the Western Hemisphere and how important it is. Well said. Thank Thank you you very much. All right. Thank Thank you, you, General.